Chapter 19 of Prejudices, First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prejudices, First Series by H. L. Mencken. Jack London. The quasi-science of genealogy, as it is practiced in the United States, is directed almost exclusively toward establishing aristocratic descents for nobodies. That is to say, it records and glorifies decay. Its typical masterpiece is the discovery that the wife of some obscure county judge is the grandchild, infinitely removed, of Mary Queen of Scots, or that the blood of Geoffrey of Monmouth flows in the veins of a Philadelphia stockbroker. How much more profitably its professors might be employed in tracing the lineage of truly salient and distinguished men. For example, the late Jack London. Where did he get his hot artistic passion, his delicate feeling for form and color, his extraordinary skill with words? The man, in truth, was an instinctive artist of a high order, and if ignorance often corrupted his art, it only made the fact of his inborn mastery the more remarkable. No other popular writer of his time did any better writing than you will find in The Call of the Wild, or in parts of John Barleycorn, or in such short stories as The Sea Farmer and Samuel. Here, indeed, are all the elements of sound fiction. Clear thinking, a sense of character, the dramatic instinct, and above all, the adept putting together of words. Words charming and slyly significant. Words arranged in a French phrase for the respiration and the ear. You will never convince me that this aesthetic sensitiveness, so rare, so precious, so distinctively aristocratic, burst into a biogenetic flower on a San Francisco sandlot. There must have been some intrusion of an alien and superior strain, some pianissimo fill-up from above. There was, obviously, a great deal more to the thing than a routine hatching in low life. Perhaps the explanation is to be sought in a Jewish smear. Jews were not few in the California of a generation ago, and one of them, at least, attained to a certain high, if transient, fame, with the pen. Moreover, the name London has a Jewish smack. The Jews like to call themselves after great cities. I have indeed heard this possibility of an Old Testament descent put into an actual rumor. Stranger genealogies are not unknown in seaports. But London the artist did not live a cappella. There was also London the amateur great thinker, and the second often hamstrung the first. That great thinking of his, of course, took color from the sordid misery of his early life. It was, in the main, a jejune socialism, wholly uncriticized by humor. Some of his propagandist and expository books are almost unbelievably nonsensical, and whenever he allowed any of his so-called ideas to sneak into an imaginative work, the intrusion promptly spoiled it. Socialism, in truth, is quite incompatible with art. 
its cook-tent materialism, is fundamentally at war with the first principle of the aesthetic gospel, which is that one daffodil is worth ten shares of Bethlehem steel. It is not by accident that there has never been a book on socialism which was also a work of art. Papa Marx's Das Kapital at once comes to mind. It is as wholly devoid of graces as The Origin of Species, or Science and Health. One simply cannot conceive a reasonable man reading it without aversion. It is as revolting as a barrel organ. London, preaching socialism, or quasi-socialism, or whatever it was that he preached, took over this offensive dullness. The materialistic conception of history was too heavy a load for him to carry. When he would create beautiful books, he had to throw it overboard as Wagner threw overboard democracy, the superman and free thought. A sort of temporary Christian created Parsifal, a sort of temporary aristocrat created the call of the wild. Also, in another way, London's early absorption of social and economic nostrums damaged him as an artist. It led him into a socialistic exaltation of mere money. It put a touch of avarice into him. Hence, his too deadly industry, his relentless thousand words a day, his steady emission of half-done books. The prophet of freedom, he yet sold himself into slavery to the publishers and paid off with his soul for his ranch, his horses, his trappings of a wealthy cheesemonger. His volumes rolled out almost as fast as those of E. Phillips Oppenheim. He simply could not make them perfect at such a gait. There are books on his list, for example, The Scarlet Plague and The Little Lady of the Big House, that are little more than garrulous notes for books. But even in the worst of them, one comes upon sudden splashes of brilliant color, stray proofs of the adept penman, half-wistful reminders that London, at bottom, was no fraud. He left enough, I am convinced, to keep him in mind. There was in him a vast delicacy of perception, a high feeling, a sensitiveness to beauty. And there was in him, too, under all his blatancies, a poignant sense of the infinite romance and mystery of human life. End of chapter 19 Recording by Linda Johnson